Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show is an exploration on acquiring, operating, and growing small companies through conversations with business owners and private investors. You can learn more and stay up to date on this podcast, our weekly newsletter, and print publication, The Operator's Handbook at alexbridgman.com. And follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. My guest, Ryan Galea, is the first guest in a CEO series I'm doing with search CEOs who acquired their companies within the last three years and have early lessons and emotions in their very recent or current memory. The goal of the series is to learn strategies and hear stories from early career CEOs about how to manage the first couple of years running a new company. Ryan acquired VoiceFriend in August 2021, a communications platform for nursing homes and senior living facilities. Then less than a year later, acquired a second business, CareMerge, which offers engagement software for senior living. Ryan and I discussed managing people and tasks, internal communication, change management within an acquisition versus a merger, and what's gone differently than expected. Enjoy. Every CEO and entrepreneur needs support from a team of expert professionals like attorneys, bankers, and accountants like Hood and Strong. Less often mentioned, but just as important, is insurance. And August Felker and his team at Overly Risk Strategies are the experts you need on your team to navigate the insurance needs of your company, as dozens of past podcast guests have partnered with them to do. Oberly helps you evaluate what your current and soon-to-be-acquired company needs for insurance today, while also anticipating what it might need tomorrow. To get in touch, email august at august.felker at oberly-risk.com or visit their website at oberly-risk.com. And now for some advice and observations on insurance for small companies, here's August himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. What are some strategies for getting insurance costs down? So the biggest thing we we can help help clients with and managing their long-term insurance costs, which is always one of the questions we get, is, okay, how can we come in and, and, and over time reduce our insurance spend? And there's a couple areas that, uh, in particular, a couple policy types that you can really focus on that I think you can have the most impact on. And one is workers' comp. So workers' comp is really driven by your claims experience. So if you're able to reduce your claims experience, you can see a direct impact on your workers' comp. And so we we really try to work with clients to put in place things like a return to work program or safe driving practices or safe lifting practices or safety meetings or all types of sort of ways that you can prevent workers' comp claims. And that really can have a meaningful impact on your on your premiums. We've seen clients that can save 20 to 30% year over year just by having better claims. So that, that's a big, big area we think kind of to focus on if you really want to get your cost down, especially if you're an industry that has, you know, workers' comp is more of a sizable percentage of your total premium. The second big area that, that I think is really important to focus on is if you're a business that has a a fleet of vehicles. Insurance for those commercial vehicles is expensive. Again, like workers' comp, it's so driven by uh, how the claims have performed. So what we're seeing a lot of our clients doing that are having great results on their auto pricing is they're putting in like a telematic system, cameras in their vehicles that track all kinds of things like speeding and stops and starts they run MVRs on all their new hires to make sure that they have a valid driver's license and uh, have a good driving record. So if you can put in place those things, 
you can really save money on your auto insurance over the long run, have sizable savings. Same with the workers' comp. Awesome. Thanks, August. To learn more about Oberly Risk Strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, and Oakborn Advisors for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Hey, Ryan, it's good to see you on the podcast. Thanks for being the first guest in this CEO series that we're doing. would love to start with a little bit about your career and then the business you acquired, Voice Friend, uh, in August 2021. Let's start there. Yeah. My background, I came from the finance world, very typical finance background, did investment banking, healthcare banking, and then did private equity for a few years before going back, doing my uh, JD and MBA. I actually didn't do a search straight out of my MBA. I went back to finance, worked uh, in the hedge fund world. So I've really done everything you possibly do in finance at this point, but learned about search while doing my MBA. Kind of got, got the idea in my head and couldn't, couldn't shake it. Uh, and basically, as soon as I started the, the hedge fund, I was starting to dig in and thinking about more how I could do a search. So launched, very focused, wanted to do a healthcare software. Obviously, given the healthcare background, and I did a lot of tech investing at the hedge fund, but also just personally, looked pretty focused actually in kind of the senior care tech space. Looked at a few businesses, and then almost I think it was literally a year to the day I launched my search, I closed the first acquisition, which was a company called Voice Friend. It was a SaaS platform that was used to manage communication with staff, families, and residents in nursing homes and senior living communities. So think, you know, think text and phone-based communication that's automated and that has some workflows wrapped around it. Tiny business. When we bought it, it was less than, it was less than 15 people, might have been 10. It was a really tiny group. And the CEO who was, you know, bootstrap business, CEO is doing everything himself. So jumped in. Those first six months was a lot of blocking and tackling. It was, I would say, almost 100% like true operations stuff. So, you know, setting up the HR, setting up the CRM system, doing the accounting until we could get a bookkeeper in there. None of it was really high level CEO, high value add stuff. It was kind of getting, setting up the, the plumbing infrastructure. And getting to know the business, obviously, getting to know the people. In retrospect, it's kind of funny. I, I was like, okay, I'll do all this plumbing stuff and then I'll hire the experts. I'll hire like the best sales guy I can find to do that stuff. Cause like, let's, let's, let me, let's get someone really solid there. And then you quickly learn it's kind of the reverse. Get some, you do the, that stuff and then get people, you know, once you kind of have the plumbing set up, get people who are more junior who you can kind of, give very direct coaching to to start running that with all that, free up your time to do this higher level stuff. It's kind of the reverse of what I initially thought was the way to approach it. And it quickly, quickly kind of flipped within, probably within the end of that six months. And then yeah, the, the crazy thing we did, which was very unique, was less than a year after the first deal, we acquired a second business that was actually slightly bigger than the first business. It was a true true merger. That company, a company called Care Merge, they do uh, 
engagement software for the senior living space. So they're much more kind of app and web-based solutions that helps that help the resident families and staff manage their experience well in the community. So think like you know, they'll have life enrichment programs. And so the tool will give the life enrichment director the software to manage that program. So what activities are going on? Is the programming balanced? Let the residents sign up for activities. Kind of track, let the family see what the loved one in the community, what their loved one's doing day to day. It's a very complimentary product suite. You know, doing a, a merger out of the gate was definitely ambitious. We, I think we put a ton of thought into how we would actually execute it. And we had a luxury of the deal taking a lot longer to close than we expected because they had a subsidiary in Pakistan. I don't know if you're familiar with the Pakistan regulatory authorities, but they're not known for their speed. They're <laughs> everything there, anything government related there, you got to be prepared to move very, very slowly. Like even at the airport, you got to get there. Like I, I went right after we closed the deal. It's like, you got to get there hours before your flight because you have no idea how long it's going to take to get through immigration. It was just crazy, but it was, you know, we spent a ton of time thinking through how are we going to combine the teams, you know, how to message the acquisition to the employees. We brought in a lot of consultants to give us their opinions on how to approach it and kind of coach us through that. And I think that period of time is when that's when I really learned to be much more the high level manager because I have to be kind of forced me into it. And you know, now we were a much larger company. It was impossible for me to kind of have my hands in absolutely everything and being so boots on the ground and letting other people kind of run with higher level stuff. And so it's kind of when things switched for me. And the so like, you know, whereas before early on it was all operations related stuff I was doing. Now it's like that stuff's mostly farmed out. And I try to focus most of my time pretty deliberately on like anything that is value creation related. So right now it's a lot of sales and marketing stuff. But I, like, I really consciously try to make sure like at the end of the day, if I look back at my schedule, I'm like, wow, like that was all spent on some accounting issue. <laughs> then, you know, I was reviewing the, the financial close all day. I'm like, okay, that wasn't a great use of my time. Like, let's, let's see if I can get someone else to focus on that and be a lot more deliberate with what I do day to day. So I think I've got a lot better at that. How do you prioritize your different tasks that are ongoing in your business and whether you do them yourself versus hand them off to you know someone on your team? Yeah, it's 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 always hard letting go of something because you know you're always worried. Oh no, it's gonna I just working perfectly. I don't want anyone to screw it up. But I find it's kind of piecemeal. So it's things that I'm doing that you know, aren't really high, like they're kind of simple and you give it to somebody and if they do well on that, you're like, okay, let me give them something else that's kind of, I shouldn't be doing, but it's a bit more complex. And you kind of start doing that and gradually, you know, once you find a couple people you can trust and you start rolling stuff off, you can start rolling off the bigger stuff, you know, stuff that initially I wouldn't trust many people with, but I shouldn't be doing. <laughs> and then, you know, it's gradual. And then eventually you get your point and you're like, wow, like I finally have, I can carve out two hours and just sit down and think through like you know, strategy, long-term planning. And it's, 
it's great, but it took a while to get there. What's your process for training someone to take over a task that you've been doing for a while? Yeah, so initially, I mean, it's kind of like a running trend with how I approach things early on was like I wanted to, I didn't want to feel like I was like over micromanaging. And so I would give like, like okay, like, this is what I did. I explained it to them once and say, hey, you know, run with it. And I thought that was for the person like, oh, that's like a respectful way to do it. You know, he's not, he's respecting know, my intelligence. And but that's actually not, I figured it's not the way to do it because they're not going to speak up because they, because I've approached it that way that I try to make it sound simple. They think if they ask the question that they're not going to come off smart. So it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, you know, the, <laughs> exactly. And you find out pretty early on, you're like, oh crap, like they clearly didn't understand what I explained. And so it's, yeah, it is a lot of, like during that first period, like a lot of check-ins. So explain it. I always type it up afterwards and send it in an email just so it's clear on text. And then, you know, let them give it a shot and then I'll check in, you know, that week and say, hey, you know, did you get take care of this? You run any roadblocks? Like, and I always try to be like, really, you know, I, you know, I might not explain this issue too well. I, I'm kind of thinking through it again after we got off the other day. Like, how did you? And so usually that, you know, more check-ins, always kind of following up with email. I found that's the repetition is the biggest thing in anything. I found is just a lot of repetition, whether it's the company message, the visions, the goals, what I find, what I value in the team. It, I sound like a broken record a lot of the time, I think, or at least I feel that. Maybe it doesn't come off that way, but I find that's the most effective. We had Carl struck on the podcast, and one thing he talked about was that questions and messaging from the CEO sounds different to his team. I think the words he used were uh, a whisper sounds like a yell to your team. So kind of with that idea, like how do you think about phrasing and communication to your team, knowing that people are going to interpret messages from the CEO in a certain way? Yeah, and I, I still don't think I'm great at it, but I do think when I was on the other end of it, I was particular, I was like a person who was particularly sensitive to how things were messaged. Like I would read into everything. It's just a natural tendency of mine. So I think having that perspective of being on the other end and doing that, I always try to think, okay, how would I have responded to this if I was in their shoes? And taking a step back, oh, well, this might have come off a little aggressive. The, the key is trying to what I was saying earlier, like saying it in person and then sending the email instead of just sending an email. I think it's super important because emails, no matter how hard you try, someone's going to misinterpret something in there. That's a big one. And then the other one is just being very clear about expectations. So, you know, I, so I mentioned my JD, my law degree. And I remember before that, it's, it's actually an interesting nuance. I didn't fully appreciate the gravity of the exact words you use. And when you do law school, you realize just, I mean, that's all you do. You know, a different word before another word can change the meaning of absolutely the entire provision in, in an agreement. And so I became very hyper-focused after that, like total 180 from where I was on like how I positioned words or what used, words I used. And I think being super deliberate like that 
is what you have to do as a CEO. So at least that, although I've never practiced law, that skill has come in handy in one way. What went into your decision to go get a law degree? I had a few reasons for doing it. One, I mean, my, mom, my mom's lawyer, she always wanted me to be a lawyer or to at least get my law degree. She always said that, you know, oh, you get your MBA, you got to get your JD. And so I was like, that was why, I mean, that was the, the main reason, but I was, I was like, okay, make mom happy. It's, it was only one extra year, so figured. But no, another, there's a couple other reasons. One was I'm from Canada originally. And when I moved to the US after college to work, I always felt like I was at a big disadvantage because everyone knew each other. They, they knew that the schools that the others went to and I was a little left out of the conversation. So I figured, all right, well, let's, the best way to meet people is go to two schools at once. And I'll build my network up a lot more quickly that way. And then I actually, when I was in private equity, we did a lot of, like a lot of the team or JD MBAs at the partner level. We did a lot of like financial structuring stuff. And I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And so that was a big driver too. And the first hedge fund job, actually, our entire team was JD MBAs because we did like a lot of merger arbitrage or trades related to legal issues. So it was the one job you really needed both degrees, although it didn't stay too long. So as you've gotten more experience in the business and you've learned how to hand tasks off to your team, how has that affected your time horizon and the time periods ahead of time in which you think about the business? Before it felt like I was always being pulled into doing something. I wasn't actively like seeking out what I, the task I was doing. It's like, you know, an email would come in or a customer issue. It, it was always like you'd get to the end of the day and you'd go in with no plan, but you'd have something pulling you every minute of the day. And now there's just a lot more time where it's like me going into the week, going into the day saying, okay, these are a couple of things I want to spend time on and think through. And they have nothing to do with what's going on on this given day within the business, but it's for the, for the quarter. And I think we built our three-year vision. And I think you're right. Like it's went from like the most myopic focus of, all right, let's get through the, the next 24 hours. <laughs> and I have no plan for that, how that day is going to go to, all right, this is what I want to accomplish this quarter. These are like the three key things. And I think it's, yeah, it's becoming increasingly more longer term. So as your time horizon has extended within the business, how has that affected your priorities? I think early on and going back to what I was saying about you know, bringing, bringing the experts and let them run with it in the certain domain areas, I felt like sales and marketing was maybe 10% of my time early on. I let the sales team run with it, gave high level input, but didn't, didn't get like right into the nitty gritty of positioning and everything and spent a lot more time on like the financial management pieces. And then now it's kind of totally flipped. I try to spend most of my time on sales and marketing. And I am a lot more in the weeds and like being, you know, with representing to customer deals, like being very involved in that. And I think that was, I think it was, you know, it felt like, that stuff's a lot harder. And if you're doing the project-based operation stuff, it's easy to feel like you're accomplishing something. You're just, oh yeah, I rolled out this, I did that. And then you like look back and realize, well, that really, did that have any impact? Okay, maybe you're a little bit more efficient. But like, do I need to do that? Probably not. 
So I think the gratification from some of this more strategic stuff isn't as immediate, but I think ultimately that's you know, where you create value and that's why you're the CEO. You mentioned becoming a more strategic CEO after the merger. Is there anything you can point to or any moment that you feel like enabled that to happen for you? Yeah. And it's interesting. So we brought in these consultants to help us. They're like merger consultants to help us with the merger. And they've done this quite a bit. And so when they came in and they started talking, because they're, they're kind of like, you know, they're McKinsey guys. They start talking about the business like how we would have talked about it. Um, and like maybe take a step back. And like, Whoa, I'm, I'm so in the weeds. And they're, they're like really focused on the, you know, how are we going to, what wording do we use on this slide? Like what, when should we time certain conversations? How do we get by? And like this much more like uh, the qualitative soft thinking that comes with being a leader. And they really, you know, were focused because I've seen this and the importance of success of a merger being dependent on you know, the, the acquired business kind of buying into the new vision and getting behind the, the leadership. And so like when they started talking about all this stuff, I think it just led me to take a step back. And, you know, those things that you might think are more wishy-washy that you hear leaders do, <laughs> you know, in the books, when you're kind of forced to do it, I'm not like the most wishy-washy kind of guy, but when you're forced to do it and you see the impact, like, oh, wow, okay, I, I, now I get it. And then that's, those are the things that make a leader. And so that, you know, I've never, I was always like a little reserved to bring consultants in. I mean, I, consultants have a certain reputation, but it was actually a good forcing mechanism to cause me to, you know, kind of reevaluate my, my priorities and think I'm better for it. So at HW Media, we recently went through an acquisition of Altus Research. And I remember talking with you beforehand about integration planning, and it was a really helpful conversation. Now that you've gone through this, like, what, how do you reflect on that process? And what's been your some of your takeaways from that kind of integration plan that we discussed? I think we, we definitely overprepared. Oh, that's a bad thing. I think it's always good to be overprepared. That's always, you know, it's nice going in feeling like you've thought of everything and you thought of things that didn't even matter. It's a good feeling. I think we were, in retrospect, maybe almost on the too far end of the spectrum of, okay, we really want to make sure the employee base is meshing and the most important thing is preventing turnover. I think we were so sensitive to that, that it kind of led us to take our eye a little bit off the ball initially on the, the day-to-day business or the, or led us to make decisions that were postponed decisions on, under the, the guise of, okay, like if we make this decision now, it might ruffle a few feathers. We don't want to ruffle feathers, so let's just hold off on doing it. Kind of let us because we're going to make decisions anyways. If we had made them sooner, we'd be you know, three months ahead of where we are right now. I, I don't think you still got to toe that line, 
But I think we probably went too far on the let's let's make it let's be kumbaya, let's make sure everyone feels really good about things. I think we could have achieved that same impact, but with a bit more of a decisive approach with making some other tough decisions sooner than we ultimately did. You mentioned that the merger was really similar to your initial acquisition. What were some differences with the merger versus your acquisition of VoiceFriend as a searcher? Yeah. And part one portion of why things I think were different was the you know, the first business was very traditional search type business, you know, founder-led company. The second one had been a VC-backed business. So I think what comes with that is a very different culture and a culture that I think the search community is less used to walking into. And so that was an interesting dynamic. But I think that was that had nothing to do with the mergers unique to the type of company we bought. But I think the biggest difference is you know, when I came into the first company, it was all right, sit down with all the employees, kind of hear what they like, what they don't like about the business, try to get some easy wins, early wins with them, and kind of get that buy-in, show credibility, and start moving, moving things forward. The second one, you kind of walk in with some credibility since you're already running a business. It's not like, okay, who's this guy who's just kind of being, being slotted in? It's a lot more around being the arbiter of Someone will come to you and they'll say, hey, like, I think, you know, so-and-so is doing, you know, X and I'm not happy about it. And I think you, need to, you know, someone needs to do something about this. Because there's, there's always, I don't know, there's a fear when you merge two companies, like someone's going to take my responsibilities and I don't want to lose that, that, or I want more control or I want to run this team. And so there's all this jostling that happens, which I did not fully appreciate until I was in the thick of it where you're having all you know, your one-on-one calls turn into, oh, you know, she said this, he said that, and someone's boxing me out or just stuff along those lines. And so it's not so much about like the first time around is, all right, your people out, hear what they like, hear what they don't like. It's more, all right, how do I make everybody get along and align behind this, the same vision and feel like a team? Because naturally the, People at the one company are going to start kind of grouping. It's kind of like high school. You know, they stay, they group and they talk about the other team behind their back and same thing. And so it's a very different, like you still do the, what do you like about the company? What you don't like about the company, but that's not what's going to get you the support of the team. Like the last time around this time you get the support of the team. You need to basically somehow get all these people to get along, feel like they're part of the same company when they were a month ago. So that it's a different, different challenge. The jostling piece is pretty interesting. What do you think are some of the root causes for some of that? Yeah. So I think I think part of it is just in a merger. Every time people hear the word merger, they assume there's gonna be some layoffs or cuts of duplicative functions. And I mean we made a really concerted effort to drive on the point that this was about growth and we're not going to lay anybody off. And so that's not something you need to worry about. But I think it's a natural tendency to fall into that, especially when you have two people coming in who are doing the same job. And naturally, one wants to best the other and 
be the de facto leader of that that team. I also think there's a bit of a going back to like the clicks that form. It's a bit of a, like that vacuum chamber kind of issue where these employees from the one company and you're not privy to this typically might be saying like you know, you know kind of talking back and forth among themselves with the other team and getting each other riled up and they start thinking assuming the worst and it just yeah i think that is part of the issue is people people kind of confirm their biases when they were both concerned about the same thing so both of them have the same concern they hear something that yeah, reaffirms the other person's belief and it just spirals out of control <laughs> Instead of just talking in an open forum, I think that's what leads to the jostling. I think I think it's just uncertainty makes, makes people do weird things. How do you work to clear that uncertainty? Obviously, getting people in person, both for work but also for non-work stuff. You know, grabbing a meal, getting to know each other on a social basis. I think the other one that seemed to work pretty well is getting people from the opposite companies to jointly work on specific projects early on. So you you know you have all these merger related activities and oftentimes they might be cross functional and so you try to get them to kind of co-lead a certain project and get that win together and get that work dynamic going it kind of forces it. it doesn't always work it can backfire in one case it did where the two just didn't get along but I would say in ninety five percent of the cases that was the most effective thing we did was making sure that everyone was involved in something related to the merger and working together to do that. Switching gears a little bit, what do you feel like the highest wins and lowest losses have been in your first two years? I think one of them was this this week. So we did our first all-company off-site holiday party on Friday. And you know, I gave so I started since the merger and so this is you know one of the things the consultants it's, all kudos to them was like, you know, you gotta, you gotta go and give that like motivational talk or like vision talk that's more aspirational. Like they, they pushed that on me and I did that early on and it was really successful. And I actually had you know, one employee come up to me afterwards and be like, wow, I'm so inspired by that. Like this is the type of company I want to work for. Like I was like, oh wow, this is, that is rewarding. And so the same thing after this, this call, this one we did on Friday, the feedback this week, it's been like, I, I, sometimes you don't know when you're up there, like how people are reacting to it. And feedback this week, everyone's like, wow, we're so excited about the year ahead. Like, we love the team. This vision's great. You know, we're happy working for such a, like a mission driven company. Like that feedback where you're like, wow, we got, like, people are bought into what we're doing. We have the momentum. That, that's super rewarding. I think the lows, are always when you lose. I think when you lose a good employee, that always hurts. And we we lost a guy. I, I really liked him. I thought he was super solid. It wasn't. I think you know he got a great opportunity and it made sense for him. But it's always it always hurts. It's like you're losing one. It's like a family, right? And someone from the family's leaving and they want to do something else. And they, it's like a bit of a breakup feeling you get. It's always a bit of a low. What advice would you offer a first-time CEO? I think for the first one, you know, first moving into it, it's to recognize and be okay 
with the fact that like the first 90 days or 180 days are going to be chaotic in a sense. Like I went in, I like overstressed myself. Ah, oh, man, focusing on the wrong stuff. I'm not doing the right things or this isn't working or that's not working yet. And realizing that the first thing you try, although you might think it's the obvious and the right thing to do, might not necessarily work. So, you know, like we made some, some small bets early on that seemed so obvious. Like it was as fast to work, but then it didn't. And so I know it's, it's humbling. Like you're going to get knocked a bunch in that first bit. And it's just being able to, take it on the chin and be like, all right, well, that didn't work. Let's, let's move on to the next thing. And we learned something in that process. And so that was a win. I think that mentality is what you need to have. And then, yeah, when you're moving into the second year, I think it's, it's that's the time where you really got to be going back to time management. You really got to be deliberate about your time and make sure that you're focused on value creating activities. And if you're not, try to hire or figure out a way to off- offload the things that are taking up your time. And then actually one final thing I would say is for the first few people is try to do all the, the functions yourself or get pretty heavily involved in each before you start making any big hires. So learn it so you have a really good feel for it because it'll make hiring a heck of a lot easier. In what ways do you feel like your life has turned out differently than you expected? I think it ends up being, I'm sure everyone says this, it's a lot more of the like human, emotional, high touch side of things. You know, a lot of coaching, a lot of, you know, trying to figure out what makes people tick. It's the softer stuff that, especially coming from finance, I don't think I fully appreciate it this much. I actually enjoy it quite a bit. And it's definitely something I feel like I wasn't getting my past role and what motivated this move, but I just didn't realize how much time ends up being this softer part of the job. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? So one, and this one's kind of funny because it's kind of the whole search, the whole belief or search model kind of is predicated on this, this belief, but I don't know how I didn't recognize myself. The whole thing with searches, you know, you get an inexperienced CEO, but who has high horsepower, you slot him in, and then he does great. My belief early on was, all right, let's hire the most experienced guy who's done it, who can do it again, and wasn't as much focused on that grit and character side of it. And that's totally flopped. I would much rather hire a go-getter who might not know everything, but wants to learn than the guy who's done it already because the guy who's done it already when you know hits a stumbling block he's not going to reset he thinks he knows he knows it and he thinks what he's doing is going to work even though it might not the guy who has grit will step back reassess try something new and not quit i'd much rather that than the experience how do you try to identify that person, whether you're interviewing them or even after you've hired them and they're working on your team? How do you look for those people? Yeah, and it, it's, I mean, I don't think we've implemented it fully yet, but some of this, the kind of top grading or who interviewing approach, like really trying to understand people's motivations for certain decisions, consistently asking the like 
follow up the why, the how, and what questions to whatever they say. I've been doing that a lot more and it's fascinating some stuff people will say if you just keep asking them, why did you do that? Or what motivated you to do this? And you get, it's, yeah, it's kind of, you're pulling out, but eventually you get a really good picture of how people are going to react in certain situations and what their character is going to be like on the job day to day. And I think we've, we're getting pretty good at it. Still work to be done, but yeah, we're getting there. What's the best business you've ever seen? Amazon's great. So I'm going to say something different than Amazon because I do think, I mean, they've taken over the world. Some of the Alexa stuff, maybe they have a master plan behind the scenes that I'm not privy to and that's why they're doing it, but not here nor there. I love businesses that make money in unique ways. So businesses where like the customer is getting the product for free and someone else is paying for it. So it's a win-win. So something like a Venmo. Love it. It's a brilliant model. I mean, now they're doing other ways to make money. It's not just they're clipping interest on the cash they have in the Venmo accounts. But that's a great product. Like, why wouldn't I use that? It makes my life easier and it's free. It's a, those business models are the best. And so I always try to think of ways for our product. Like, how can I get win-wins? Like, how can I implement something where it's a no-brainer for the, for the customer? So like B2B to see things, sometimes they're good. You help them sell something of yours. The customer payments, like implementing transaction into your product so that they can charge their customers and you can put some transaction fees on it. Love that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's a fantastic business. Are there any others you can think of that you came across or a friend acquired that would be a good fit for something like that? Yeah, there was one where it was a... I didn't acquire it. They were going way too fast, but... It was like a for contractors or something for the software, and they they would facilitate like they would set you up with the like the order all the parts. They would basically set you up to do it, but then they wouldn't like. I was like, we well, could easily just add the payments on top of this thing you're giving them, and then be making a bunch of money off of just connecting the contractors or the the suppliers with the the homeowners. Um, so I like, I like that for this kind of model. That was probably the best one I saw. No one else. I don't think I saw anyone who was actually doing it already though. There's always something I look to do. I was like, Oh, how can I add payments to this? Yeah. I'd love to see you add more payments functionality to your various products. That'd be really fun to follow along on. Here's some ideas. Thank you, Ryan, so much for sharing your time and being a part of the first episode in this CEO series. Really appreciate you sharing your time. It's always great to chat with you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakborn Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. Mm-hmm.